Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from thousands of successful individuals from around the world. I'm your host, Ashutosh Garg, and today I'm privileged to welcome a very, very accomplished poet from Hudson Valley, USA, Ruth Dannon. Ruth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Ruth is the founder of Live Writing, which is a project for reading, writing, and performance of poetry. She's an accomplished and well-recognized poet, and her work has been published widely all over the world. Her latest book of poetry is Turn Up the Heat, and given the kind of work she's been done uh, doing, Ruth has been recognized and felicitated several times. So Ruth, tell me about your amazing journey as a poet. I would say that in some ways I've been a reluctant poet. Okay. I started early. I started as a child. I remember the first poem I wrote or that I remember writing and it went like this. Birds and words are funny things. Mm -hmm. Birds and words mean many things. Mm. And in some ways I've been writing that same poem all my life. But wow. So I, I, you know, I, I've always written, but I come from a family of scientists mm -hmm. and, you know, there wasn't, you couldn't really think of poetry as something serious. Mm. It was, you know, it was nice to read poetry. My mother loved poetry. Mm. I quote page after page after page of Virgil and Dante and mm. what else? I mean, she... She could memorize poetry. She was a doctor. She was educated in Europe. Mm -hmm. She was a refugee. And so I grew up with poetry around me, but never thinking that that's something one could be. Mm. And so I continued writing all through school. And then when I got to college, I was continuing to write, and people would take the poems out of my hands and publish them in the Mm -hmm. School magazine, and then when I went to graduate school, <coughs> something similar happened. Somebody said to me, "Well, you should take this seriously," mm. and I thought, "Well, that's an interesting idea. Mm. I mean to take it seriously." Mm. And that took it has taken me a long time not to take it seriously, but to be visibly serious. Mm -hmm. So, so it was very incremental. And I, I listened to your interview with Yuyutsu, mm -hmm. and I know you asked him who had influenced him. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that question, if it were asked of me. And I had to say that in some ways, Yuyutsu was a very important influence mm -hmm. because not only did he value my work and publish it, but he basically said to me, you know, you have to, you really have to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. And that means you have to burn your house down. Correct. I had been burning my house down. I mean, I had a job after out of graduate school. I had a job in Ohio. Mm -hmm. It was a good job. Mm -hmm. And after two years, I quit. Mm -hmm. And I went to work. And my mother was very angry with me mm -hmm. because, you know, you don't quit a good teaching job. You Correct. But I did. I did. Mm -hmm. I quit. I went to New York. So, so I've had moments of that kind of... <coughs> Um, leap. I mm -hmm. call them leap, where I make a leap. And each leap has led me further into poetry. Mm -hmm. So that's, 
best way I could describe it, it's it's really slow, mm. slow journey. Um, I also think that my background, not just the science background of my family, but but their status as refugees. Mm. And the fact that they went from one country to another country to another country mm -hmm. left me with a sense of always being in exile in right. some way, always needing to be ready for the next leap, mm -hmm. what that was going to be. And I think that shaped my relationship to being a poet. Mm -hmm. And when you uh, say, you know, that to be a poet, you must burn your house down, are you stating that you can't do anything else? Not at all. Hmm. Not at all. In fact, particularly in this country, where being a poet is a profession you pay to do okay. rather than paid for, yeah. you have to find some other way, a day hmm. job, something that you can do right. and support your habit of poetry. Yeah. Uh, and I was fortunate because Early on, I I discovered that I love teaching. Mm -hmm. And in fact, teaching and writing have always sort of competed with one another. Mm -hmm. But I did not like traditional teaching and I did not like conventional teaching. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, when I went to NYU, which is where I met Yuyutsu, mm -hmm. um, I was privileged to create my own program. Okay. And I did that for 23 years. Hmm. And I completed the program in a, in a kind of experimental way. And then eventually uh, they closed my program along mm -hmm. with ten, nine other people mm -hmm. whose programs were also discontinued. Mm -hmm. And that's when I moved to the Hudson Valley and, and started live writing, which allows me to continue experimenting, supports my writing, it gives me a great deal of satisfaction and pleasure. Somebody once said to me, this was another important advice, that you need to be a good member of the literary community. Right. You cannot be in isolation. You cannot do anything in this world sitting in an attic all by yourself. Mm. You must be in the world with other people. And so my curating has been very much an aspect of that. Well said. So let's talk a little bit about your new book, Turn Up the Heat. And yeah. you know, when I was reading about you, your poetry is often lauded for its rich language and innovative structure. Uh, tell me a little bit about Turn Up the Heat, the unusual title, and how your book continues to reflect your you know, thinking in poetry and the language. I love that question. Um, well, first of all, very simply, mm -hmm. I hate the cold. I mean, I really hate the cold. Mm -hmm. So I'm always saying, turn up the heat. Mm -hmm. I think it's obviously it's a cliche. And, um, you know, what risky thing to make a cliche the title of your book. But I loved it. I loved that title. And I think it has to do a little bit, maybe even with this issue of language, which is that as a writer, I'm not particularly interested in telling you what happened last Tuesday. Mm -hmm. you know, last Tuesday, I went to the river and took a walk and 
it was very nice and you know now i'm mm. cleansed by mm. spiritual experience mm. i might have that but i would never want to write it in that way mm. and so there's a kind of alchemical or or uh, uh heating up of experience that leads to a kind of transformation mm. and so i want to increase the pressure and of course we're living in a time of increased pressure. I mean, the climate crisis is putting pressure on all of us. The political situation throughout the world is not particularly happy. Mm. Um, one gets older, and that's not easy to bear. Yeah. So there are all these ways in which there is this kind of pressure that's placed on us, which is a form of turning up the heat. And then... I took a trip to Sardinia mm -hmm. uh, right before the pandemic. And there I <coughs> witnessed this incredible bonfire to celebrate the martyrdom or the, or the, the life mm -hmm. of St. Anthony of the Desert. Mm -hmm. And he was the patron saint of hermits. I never heard of him before. He mm -hmm. was in Egypt. And he was said to have stolen fire from the devil wow. and heat into the world. Mm. And when they make this fire, as it's in the book, they make a big, big mound, bigger than a house, mm -hmm. with a, a, a tree in the middle, a hollow tree in the middle. Mm -hmm. The tree stands up from the, from the mound. And it reminded me of the statue of Giordano Bruno mm -hmm. in Rome. And Bruno is one of my heroes. He's an intellectual martyr. He was burned at the stake in 1600. Mm. And so there is this paradox of heat because heat can, you know, can save your life in some ways. You can have heat in the desert and you won't freeze, but it can also destroy you. Right. Okay. And so it's in that paradox that, that I write, and I'm mm. interested in the paradoxical uh, somebody said that in this book, what I do is present propositions and then I undo them, undermine mm. my own convictions all the time. So there's a quality of uncertainty and transformation. Mm. Uh, it's interesting that you say the language is rich or that people say the language is rich, because actually that richness comes very, very hard to me mm. because, you know, I come from a European intellectual family. Mm. We abstractions and so for me to find the specific the concrete the image in the world is hard hard work mm. maybe it's effective because it is such hard work because right. it doesn't easily mm. i have students who can just produce imagery like nobody's business you know mm -hmm. that just comes yeah. but i have to fight for it i have to fight to see what's in the world and to see what is actually meaningful in the world mm. To me. Well said. Then great response. Thank you so much. But also tell me, Ruth, how does turn up the heat fit into your larger body of work? Do you see it as a continuation of previous themes or a departure? That's such an interesting question. In some ways, I think one writes the same poem throughout the lifetime. Not the same thing, but mm. <laughs> Certainly things recur 
And this book was organized recursively rather than in a linear way or mm. in a narrative way or in a thematic way. Mm. So if I go over the body of my work, such, such as it is, mm -hmm. I'll find certain things recurring. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, birds showing up all the time. I mean, they, my very first poem had birds in it. Uh, the very first poem had ambiguity and a concern with ambiguity and the question of meaning. Mm -hmm. So that continues. That said, you know, I can trace that all the way through. That said, every book is different, and every mm. book teaches you how to write itself. Correct. So, so in this book, I was excited by the fact that I had no parts. Mm -hmm. Lots of books have parts. I was excited by the idea that what I wanted was for the reader to turn the page and have no idea what was going to come next. Mm -hmm. That that each poem would look different from the one that before it. So in other books, that was not the case. In mm. other books, I have a sequence, and that sequence would be together. In the last book that, that I did with Nirala, there were several sequences. And in the first section of that book, one sequence interrupted series of poems. Mm. Used as punctuation. So every book is organized a little bit differently, but the the concerns, right? The preoccupations are always the same. Mm. Really? There's a poet. There's a poet named Rosemary Waldrop, American poet, and the story is that she was writing all these poems, and they were all about her mother. She really got tired of writing about her mother, so mm. she started doing all these experiments with cutting up language and reassembling language. Mm. And when it was all done, she was still writing about her mother. Amazing. <laughs> well, so I think that our yeah. obsessions, and I don't mean this in, in a pathological sense. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Are, are driving us, yeah. that are the heat, yeah. so to speak. Correct. Our literary lives, those persist. Correct. Yeah. And yet, you know, Ruth, I, I've often seen this, and I mean, I'm a published author of many books, but when it comes to the world of poetry, somehow it feels a little daunting or a little inaccessible. I, you know, as a well-recognized, well-known poem, what would you say, some, uh, say to someone who is hesitant to dive into poetry? Well, lots of things. And I work a lot with people who, who are like that, mm. uh, want to experience poetry, but are afraid of it. I think the first thing is to forget about trying to interpret it. Mm -hmm. that's the worst thing you could do mm. what you want to do is find some way in some bit of language some moment some physical moment mm -hmm. that you experience mm. and trust that so when I was about 15 my mm. mother gave me the collected works of T.S. Eliot mm. and I read The Wasteland for the first time and I did not understand one word not one word of the poem but I felt it in my body. So poems are not up here in the head. Poems are physical. They're in the mm. body. Mm. And so if you could make that physical, emotional link and not worry about what it means, mm. you can figure out the meaning later. It also never means just one thing. Mm. So you can't do it wrong. All you can do is experience it. So that's what I would say. The first thing the first. is to find out what you're eighth grade teacher told you about, you know, what does the first line mean? Mm. And go with 
part of the poem that makes you sort of go, oh, that's that's how I would start. Wonderful. And my next question is something that, uh, you know, you spoke about right in the beginning uh, when we, when, you know, you're referring to Yuyu's uh, question. My question is, are there any poets who have significantly influenced your writing? Well, I think it changes all the time because yeah. new poets come into your life and you you choose the ones you need at a particular moment. Mm. Um, certainly, Elliot was a very early influence. Mm -hmm. The idea that you could write a long poem, the idea that you could um, borrow and steal from other sources, that was really important to me. Mm. Later on, uh, Wallace Stevens was an important influence. Um, early Jory Graham was an important influence. Right now, I I love Diane Seuss, who mm -hmm. is very popular. Mm -hmm. What I love about her is her fearlessness, her her willingness to say anything. Mm -hmm. um, at a certain point, Adrian Rich was a very important influence. The middle period of her work, mm -hmm. before she became overtly political, mm -hmm. um, because the whole issue of writing politically is very complicated. Correct. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've always written political poems. I started mm -hmm. writing political poems as a teenager, mm -hmm. but <laughs> over the years, I've learned that what I'm le I'm less interested in the didactic part of it. Mm -hmm and more interested in what it feels like to live through mm. a political moment or a political experience mm. and what that does to the person, um, how the person lives through it. Mm. Um, so those are, are some very of my... No, very, very interesting. So I'd like to now move to uh, the... Uh, you know, you're the founder of Live Writing, which is the project for reading, writing, and the performance of poetry. Tell me a little bit about Live Writing and the reason you founded it. Well, <coughs> I had to make a living. So there was that. Yeah. And I love teaching. And I found a constituency in, in the Hudson Valley that was very exciting to me. But I've always, uh, the method by which I teach, maybe that's the best way to begin, mm -hmm. is that I actually ask my students to write together in a room with me present, mm -hmm. staying out of their way as much mm -hmm. as I can, working with what I call constraints, which mm -hmm. are formal rules. Uh, and there's, they're fighting formal rules. They're like, take three phrases and repeat them five times in the course of a piece of writing. So they're never they're never told what to write about. And I feel like that's none of my business. Mm. So part of the live writing is that they're writing live. They're writing in my presence mm -hmm. all the time. The other thing is that I believe that the only question about a piece of writing is, mm -hmm. is it alive or is it dead? Mm -hmm. and if it's alive, then you can do anything you want with it. You can revise it, you can change it, you can yeah. make it work. If it's dead, even if it's perfect, you know, formally in some way, it doesn't matter. You might as well send it away. Mm -hmm. So that was part of it. The other part of it is that I think it's really important that poetry be read aloud and heard in audiences. I mean, you build an audience 
And one of the things that I found in the early phase of developing this project is that people would come to readings mm -hmm. and would get excited about readings. Mm -hmm. um, and that's really in contrast mm -hmm. to the experience that many writers have going to bookstores where nobody shows up. Mm -hmm. and the whole thing is very solemn and very serious. But that said, I'm not interested in running an open mic. I, mm -hmm. All of my all of the readings that I curate, whether they're with my students or other people, mm -hmm. uh, particularly with the students, they're rehearsed, they're vetted, the poems are vetted and edited, the, the performance is rehearsed. And part of what I do then is teach, teach my students how to be professional readers of their work mm -hmm. so they can make the horrible mistakes of reading for too long, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. I think that explains it. Very interesting. So I have time for two more questions for you. My next question is that, you know, all of us are getting impacted with technology and the digital age and social media. What do you see social media and technology doing uh, to shape the poetic landscape in the future? Well, um... If I don't have to talk about chat GPT. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> um, I can say a lot of things because yeah. I think technology is an incredibly useful tool. Yeah. First of all, for disseminating work. I mean, mm. obviously, I could not have an interview with you without the blessings of Zoom. Yeah. Uh, and certainly my teaching. I teach people all over the country. So mm. I couldn't do that without Zoom. Mm -hmm. But also, I think that there's much more conversation about poetry and among poets, and and that's exciting. So that's made possible by technology. Yeah. There are also poets in this country, and I, I, I don't know them well, and I'm not sure that I'm that interested in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But it's called FLARF, F-L-A-R-F. Mm -hmm. They take language from Facebook mm -hmm. and and other places and they make poems with that language hmm. and of course, what interests me about that is that i think that poems really are about language and hmm. are made of language and one of the things you try to tell my students is you don't have to worry what the poem is about that will take care of itself what you have to worry about is the language and so media gives us a whole new avenue towards weird and interesting language correct Correct. You know, well Andrew Pound said, no great poetry is written in a matter of 20 years old. Hmm. So the poet has to be of his or her own time. Yep. And that that media changes the language and we have to interact with that. Well said. And my last question to you, and this is for the many, many people who will listen to our conversation. What would you say are three lessons you would like aspiring poets to take back from our conversation? Um, that's such a beautiful question. I think one thing is don't be afraid. Mm -hmm. I've been afraid much of my life. Don't be afraid. Mm -hmm. um, I think another lesson is don't be alone. Mm. don't try to be alone yeah you know hillary clinton used to say it takes a village well it takes a world to make a poet and you have to be in the world and be part of the world and join the world mm. and not be afraid of the world yeah 
And the third thing I think would be to love language mm. and trust language. Even as imperfect as language is and as slippery as it is, it's your love of that language and mm. your attachment to that language that is connected to your love of the world and your attachment to the world. Mm. That means you have an ethical commitment as a poet to the world and to language, and you are engaged in an ethical activity, and that's really important. How wonderful. And on that note, Ruth, and your three amazing lessons, don't be afraid, don't be alone, be a part of the world. And third, you said, which is so, so powerful and yet so simple, love the language. Thank you so much for speaking to me about your journey. Thank you for speaking to me about your book, um, Turn Up the Heat, about so many different aspects of poetry. And thank you also for speaking to me about live writing. Thank you again and good luck. Thank you so very much. Thank you for listening to The Brand Called You videocast and podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.